You're listening to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. And I'm Jordan McGillis. Joining us today to discuss his new book, Trumponomics, Inside the America First Plan to Revive Our Economy, is Stephen Moore. Moore is currently a distinguished visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation and a senior economic contributor at FreedomWorks. He was the founder of the Club for Growth, and along with his co-author, Art Laffer, he served as one of the top economic advisors to Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. Steve, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. The book covers a lot of ground, but I want to start a conversation off uh, with a somewhat broad question. Larry Kudlow wrote the foreword to the book, and in there he says, I don't agree with President Trump on every every issue, and he knows that, but on the big picture of unleashing a new era of broad-based prosperity for America, we are in 100% agreement. From my reading of the book, uh, those areas of agreement seem to stem on the focus on economic growth. How important is economic growth for the future of the country, and where does Trumponomics fit into that conversation? Well, it's a great question, and when we first sat down with uh, then-candidate Trump uh, back in early 2016, when he asked us to be his senior economic advisors to the campaign, one of the things that Larry and I and also uh, Art Laffer um, really pushed on Trump was the idea that so many of the problems the country faces, which whether it's our big deficits, whether it's our debt, whether it is uh, you know our failing schools, the problems of the inner cities, poverty, um, all of these problems are so much easier to solve if you have a faster growing economy. Uh, you know, as, a, as an example that we use with Donald Trump all the time, if you could get 1% percentage point faster growth, so under Obama for eight years we grew at 2%, if we could raise that up to 3%, which is still less than our historical average, you know, the, uh, that will raise $3 trillion of additional revenue for the government. And so it's a great way to bring the debt burden down by, you know, having more people pay taxes and, and, and more people working and off of welfare and more companies located here rather than Mexico or China and other places. So make America competitive and a lot of these other problems become so much easier to solve. But there's also obvious tensions in uh, with Trump's policies, though. So if somebody else had been elected, you know, it, it's hard for us to imagine that we would have seen the the reduction in corporate tax rates or um, we almost certainly wouldn't be talking about deregulation in the way that we are. But with those good policies, we also see the issues with trade. And uh, in the book, you, you explain that you're in disagreement with him there. But you also suggest that maybe his end goal in that whole thing is to move somewhere towards a freer trade policy. Mm-hmm. So just... Can you outline your views on Trump's trade policy and how does his approach to that fit into Trumponomics? Well, you know, first of all, I'm always asked, uh, often asked, uh, how is Trumponomics different from Reaganomics? Because both Larry and I and Art Laffer, you know, worked for the, the Reagan and, and Laffer was the architect of Reaganomics and his tax plan. So we, we all knew Reagan, uh, me less than they did. But, um, you know, Reaganomics, Reagan was a philosophical conservative. Uh, he uh, had, you know, was well-read in conservative scholars and, you know, followed people like Milton Friedman and Bill Buckley and others. Um, Donald Trump is not at all, in my opinion, uh, ideological. I mean, you know, Reagan was an ideological conservative. Obama was an ideological liberal. 
Donald Trump, I don't don't think sees the world through the prism of a uh, ideology. He looks at the world through the eyes of a businessman, and I think that was one of the reasons that he was elected. People liked the idea of putting someone who actually knew something about business and the economy into the Oval Office, and so he he manages like a, a businessman. And the good news for people like me, who I'm a conservative is that, you know, most of our solutions make sense, you know, and their solutions don't make sense. So, uh, you know, Trump kind of gets it instinctively. Now, the other area that he's he parts company with, with respect to, um, you know, free marketeers uh, like Milton Friedman is that he is much more, he has much more protectionist, protectionist instincts. Um, he believes in using the threat of tariffs as a leverage point to getting other countries to uh, to behave. And I have to say that he taught me something about this because, you know, when we started talking about it, you know, we said, you know, well, you're a protectionist. And he used to get mad. He didn't, he doesn't think of himself as a protectionist. He thinks of himself as just a strategic free trader who's going to use these tariffs to, uh, as leverage points. And when I started, he said, I just want a level playing field. And when I started looking at the evidence, it, lo and behold, it was true that these other countries, almost every other country in the world has higher tariffs on us than we have on them. Now, wait a minute. We have free trade agreements with these countries, and yet the tariffs are, and, then, and not just the tariffs, they're not tariff trade barriers, make it very difficult for American companies to sell stuff abroad. And that hurts our farmers, it hurts our workers, it hurts, hurts our manufacturers and our technology companies. So what Trump is hoping to achieve here, and he said this in many of his speeches of late, I am using tariffs as a negotiating strategy to get these other countries to play by the rules and to, uh, you know, lessen their, uh, you know, barriers on American products. And look, if he can pull that off, I'm all for it. You know, that would, uh, one of the last lines of the book is, wouldn't it be interesting and ironic if this more trade protectionist president actually ended up, you know, moving the ball forward on lower tariffs and freer trade. And I think at the end of the day, that's very likely to happen. Now, as we speak, we're in the midst of this trade war with China. The stakes are hugely high here. I happen to think that Trump is very right about China. China cheats. They steal. You can't, they don't keep their word. They are, we're in, we are an abusive trade uh, relationship with China right now, and it can't continue. And we'll see. I mean, the ultimate best outcome would be if China opens up their markets to us, stops stealing $300 billion of our technologies. And if that happens, it'll be good for both countries. I'm interested, Steve, in your point about Trump not being ideologically driven. Uh, he's certainly not from our perspective, and, and he's he's non-traditional, as, as is That's often sure. commented. <laughs> yep. Can you talk about what that says about our culture and um, the political milieu in America leading up to 2016? Well, you know, uh, Trump, there's a lot in the book about politics and how Trump won the election. It's not just an economics book. It's actually more about politics, frankly, and, and uh, economic policy. And, you know, Trump um, did exactly the opposite of what all of the, you know, campaign consultants recommended to Republicans, which was, you know, all the campaign consultants after the Mitt Romney loss in 2012 said, oh, we got to move to the middle. Well, you got to do all these things to win Hispanic voters and black voters and this, you know, this group and that group, the feminist vote and so on. And Trump did none of that. He basically said, look, there's, there's millions and millions of voters out there that are just blue collar 
folks who feel completely disenfranchised, who feel completely ignored. One of the things I found on the campaign was that, um, you know, when I would debate liberals, they'd say, gee, why are the voters so angry? Everything's so wonderful under Barack Obama. I'm like, have you been outside the Beltway? You know, yeah, if you live inside the Washington Beltway, everything's wonderful. If you live in Silicon Valley or Hollywood, everything's wonderful. But why don't you end up, why don't you start going out to Charleston, West Virginia? Why don't you go to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? Why don't you go to, uh, you know, places, um, you know, like York, Pennsylvania and, and uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and you're not going to see, people are going to say, what re what recovery are you talking about? So Trump really tapped into the economic anxiety and his arguments about um, putting America first, uh, making America great again, about, you know, defending America, you know, in the in this global competitive uh, world really appealed to people. And, and frankly, these are the old Reagan Democratic voters who were just fed up. Frankly, they were fed up with both parties. They were fed up with the Republicans and the Democrats. And and he, along comes this non-politician. People love that about him. People love the fact that he was a non-politician. And uh, for somebody who's not ever been in politics before, I have to say he has an amazing political uh, instincts. One of the, the latter points in, in Trumponomics that you bring up as you lay out uh, the 10 fundamentals is rejecting the narrative of decline. Yes. Uh, how does that fit with what you just described, which is um, a whole portion of our country that seems to be in a, in a state of despair? Well, it's a great question. That's another great question. I mean, Look, um, I, I've been thinking a lot more about this just personally. I mean, you know, because as we speak, there's all this climate change hysteria, all these reports coming out by the UN and the US government and so on about how we're facing, you know, uh, doom and gloom unless we give the government much more power and so on. And the truth is that our side, we as sort of free market, pro-liberty, pro-freedom people, we're optimistic about the future. And and the left keeps saying why all these things can't happen. Like, oh, we can't bring back the coal industry. We can't grow to 3.4%. We have to give up all of our fossil fuels. We have to live, you know, we have to reduce our standards of living. And, and we believe, no, life on earth is getting better. We, you know, human ingenuity and freedom will make people better off. And that's why I talked about growing out of our problems. And I think that's a fundamental difference. And Trump is that way. He's incredibly optimistic about the country and about the future. And, and, you know, just one example, the left, every time I was in debates with liberal economists, whether it's people like Paul Krugman or people like Larry Summers, they'd say, oh, you know, the, the, the best the U.S. economy can do is 2% growth. And we're like, 2% growth? That's pathetic. We can grow three or four. Trump used to say, I want 5% growth, you know? <laughs> so he's an optimist and I love that about, I think the American people love that about him too. So the theme of optimism is a pretty big theme in the book. You mentioned at several points. By the way, Reagan was also an optimist. That's a, you know, there's three similarities. Sorry to interrupt you, but I think it's an important point. People ask, how are Reagan and, and, and Trump, you know, different and the same? And I think the three similarities are, number one, they're both super optimists. Number two, they both love people. Uh, and number three, they were always underestimated by their political opponents. And that was, you know, those were... You know, now there's a lot of ways that the two are very different, but I think those three things make them very similar. That optimism, I was going to say, it, it reminds me of an earlier book that you wrote with Julian Simon. Uh, it's yeah. getting better all the time. That book, 
had a pretty big influence on me in the way that I think about uh, it. Thank energy you. I'm glad. <laughs> I have to update that book, but I mean, thank you for saying that because I, I had a, you know, Julian Simon, of course, was my mentor. He's the, he was the doomslayer, you know, who was also the great optimist. And he used to, Julian used to say, I'm not an optimist, I'm a realist. I see the world, you know, the potential. Uh, and, you know, the, there's no better example of that, as you guys know, than the shale oil and revol gas revolution. You know, I always tell people, you know, it's not as if God just overnight endowed America with all this oil and gas, right? It's been there for hundreds of thousands of years. It's just through human ingenuity and American know-how, we figured out how to crack the code and get at this stuff. And now... Hopefully, there's nobody out there that's listening to this show that believes we're running out of oil and gas because, as you guys always say at, at AIER, we're not running out of oil and gas. We're running into it, and it's, it's so true. Something that we brought up with a, a past guest, Don Watkins, uh, of the Center for Industrial Progress, is that tech CEOs are really well-known uh, across the country, but how many Americans know who Harold Hamm is? Mm -hmm. uh, very few. And why do you think that is, and how can we change that? Well, I wrote a big profile for the Wall Street Journal. So uh, that was uh, several years ago when he was, uh, you know, becoming the icon that he has been, uh, he is today. Um, you know, I think that people in the oil and gas industry, um, uh, people believe that somehow they're villains rather than great um, superheroes of our economy. I mean, look, the story is very simple. The story of the U.S. economy over the last decade is the story of shale oil and gas. I mean, that's what saved Obama. Without the shale oil and gas revolution, we wouldn't have even had a, a recovery uh, to speak of under uh, Obama, which is very uh, ironic, isn't it? Because the one industry that, that uh, Barack Obama hated the most was the one that really launched uh, the economy into the recovery uh, as weak as it might have been. And so um, I think we should celebrate the, the people who are, you know, providing the power that we have to make our economy function. And I'm, I'm very worried, and I know Trump is too, that if we allow the climate change uh, movement to completely fundamentally change our economy and shut down our energy sources, we are, you want to see doom and gloom. That's the doom and gloom scenario. Yeah, in the book, you uh, you dedicate an entire chapter to energy, um, and you refer to energy as the lifeblood of an economy. What did you mean by that? And I guess, could you just walk us through the role that you played also with the uh, the original memo that you guys provided to uh, to President Trump? Uh, Sure. Sort of outlining his approach to energy policy. So Trump didn't need a lot of coaching on this. I mean, he was always from day one all in on American energy. He loves the shale oil and gas revolution. He loves the coal industry. Um, he couldn't fathom why people would want to reduce our oil and gas output, as uh, many of the leftists want to do. Um, and so uh, he, he didn't need a lot of coaching on that. He just he got it. He was all in. He loves Harold Hamm. You mentioned his name earlier. Harold Hamm was one of his principal economic slash energy advisors. And, um, you know, it's it's transformed our economy. Trump believes in it. He wants America to be number one. He understands that when you increase the supply of oil and gas, it's good for workers. It's good for American industry. It reduces our trade deficit. It reduces the threat of terrorism. I mean, there's, not, there's nothing not to like about this industry. And at the same time, we've had this amazing shale revolution we're seeing, you know, big reductions in pollution levels as well. So, you know, Trump uh, is not in favor of a dirty environment. He just wants to make sure that, you know, we are we remain a prosperous country. And if he understands, look, if you really want to if you really want to do damage to an economy, 
you know, make energy more expensive. Look what happened to Germany, you know, uh, when they went all in for green energy. It, it, it nearly destroyed their industrial base. We, we can't do that here in the United States. And Trump will not allow that to happen. But, you know, it's hard to think of an issue where, you know, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton disagreed more on than energy. I mean, Hillary was running around the country saying, I'm going to put every coal miner out of work, right? And, you know, then she wonders why she lost Pennsylvania and West Virginia and Ohio. Uh, people out, out there didn't like that idea too much. And, and so, um, you know, I think Trump believes that the way to deal with climate change to the extent it's a problem is through technology and through growth and by through human ingenuity, we'll figure out ways to do this, but it's certainly not going to happen by shutting down our energy sources. Did you see the uh, video of Barack Obama that emerged a week or two ago at Rice University um, discussing kind of in a tongue-in-cheek way the oil and gas boom in the last five years? Oh, is this where he took credit? For that, that was where he, in a tongue-in-cheek way, yeah, took credit. Did you well, see that? I, don't, I didn't think it was... What do you mean by tongue-in-cheek? Well, I, well, what I mean is there's no way he really believes that. I wonder if he does. I mean, uh, I don't think he was joking when he said it. I think he really believes that he... I mean, the problem for the left today is they don't know whether to take credit for the oil and gas revolution or to try to set right, it down. Right. And so, uh, but it's ironic, of course, because, you know, you were there, I was there. Every, every step that the administration took for eight years was to try to stop this revolution from happening, whether it was uh, EPA rules or, uh, you know, the huge subsidies we're throwing towards solar and wind power and, you know, all sorts of climate change policies that were going to destroy the fracking industry. And, and so it is ironic that this uh, president, former president, would say that it's because of me that this is happening. And you know, like, incidentally, you know, we, we used to tell Trump, you know, if you continue with your all-in policies for uh, American energy, which, you know, you were asking me, what's that about? It's, you know, getting rid of the roadblocks and hurdles, uh, allowing drilling on federal lands that are non-environmentally sensitive, building the pipelines, building the LNG terminals, building the infrastructure we need to become the, you know, the chapter of our, uh, of our book on energy is called Saudi America, because we believe we can be throughout the rest of the 21st century, the number one producer of oil and gas in the world. Critics of the book, though, I feel They're like... critics? <laughs> Who are they? <laughs> uh, J Jonathan Chait at New York Magazine wrote a pretty mm -hmm. article. It, it was a criticism of the book. And yeah. I, I think people would push back and say, well, all this deregulation and stuff is that it's actually an example of Trump's corruption. Uh, what's wrong with that argument? Well... Like I didn't. I to be honest with you, I never. I know who Jonathan Chait is, and he has. Uh, you know, he's very distinguished in the sense that he's been wrong in everything he's ever written. But so you know, the fact that he doesn't like my book, I'll hold that up as a as a badge of honor. Um, but look, Trump went around the table. I remember at one of the first meetings we were at. Uh, we described this in the book with Trump was his uh, uh, economic policy council and business council. And around the table were about twenty five highly prominent you know, CEOs of technology companies, energy companies, financial services company, manufacturers, and so on. And he went around the room and said, you know, how do we get this economy growing faster? What do we need to do to make your business grow? And, you know, I would have thought they would have said cut taxes because I, I that's what I worked on was the tax bill mostly. But I was surprised how many of them said, yeah, taxes are a problem, but the bigger problem is the regulatory stranglehold on our business. And these businessmen and women, you know, after eight years of Obama, they were just terrified that, you know, Obama, but the Obama, not so much Obama, but his administration, the people he put in the regulatory agencies, frankly, hated business. I, I sat across the table from many of them during the transition. They were they were people who were ideological left wing anti business 
zealots. And when you have when you have to report to those kind of people, you know, you feel like you're going in and getting hit over the head with a baseball bat. And I think the main effect of Trump has been these businesses are unleashed because at least they know if they grow and they make a profit and they hire more workers and build a new factory, they're not going to get whacked by government. Now, of course, we all believe in, you know, clean air and clean water and safe workplaces and, you know, our national parks and things like that. But we can do all that and still have a very vibrant uh, pro-business economy. And that's what America First is all about. It's making sure that American companies have the best environment to grow in because, I know liberals have a hard time understanding this, but without businesses, there are no jobs and you need employers to have jobs. And, and uh, you know, Trump is unapologetically pro-American business. Given that the Trump administration has already accomplished quite a bit with tax reform and these uh, this push towards deregulation, um, what do you see as being some tangible goals that they could uh, they could accomplish? That's a great question. I think next, uh, in the coming years, three or four things that really jump out, out to me. Um, I think an infrastructure bill, but an infrastructure bill that emphasizes what we need in this country is more private sector infrastructure. I mentioned earlier, we need pipelines, we need LNG terminals, we need refineries. We need, you know, we had people in living in Boston in the Northeast last winter that were relying on, you know, natural gas and, and heating oil from Russia because we didn't have the pipelines to get it from Pennsylvania to Boston. I mean, that's just stupidity, right? Uh, and so we need to build infrastructure. We need to rebuild our ports and, and our airports and our roads to make sure that we've got the best infrastructure in the world. And this doesn't, I'm not calling for a big tax increase and or government spending binge. We can do a lot of this with the private sector financing. Um, and I think that's what Trump is looking at. Unfortunately, the Democrats look at it as taking, you know, as the old fashioned public works projects and just funding it into the unions. And that's not what I'm talking about. Second of all, I think I'd love to see Trump get an uh, immigration deal done where we, we do secure our border. Obviously, the American people care a lot about that, as Trump proved. But then also moving to the legal immigration system and moving towards, uh, you know, as Larry Kudlow says, get the brainiacs into this country. The people are such, a, and, and not just the brainiacs, the hardworking people who pick the fruits and vegetables and, and help our farmers and the people who work in our service industries and our hotels and our restaurants and, and uh, you know, the, the people who are, um, you know, the spinal cord of our economy, these hardworking immigrants who want to share our freedoms and, and, uh, and become uh, rich. And that's what America is all about. And, uh, and then energy. Look, I think Trump should continue to push forward with, uh, you know, American energy. We are very close to becoming energy and self-sufficient. But Trump doesn't want to just make America energy self-sufficient. He wants America to be energy dominant in the next 10 years. And we can do that. We can be, you know, the, as I said, the new Saudi Arabia. And, and that's not just oil and gas, but we can coal. We have the cleanest coal in the world today. Nuclear power. I think it's a big mistake if we let our nuclear industry uh, you know, go bankrupt, um, get get a level playing field, get rid of all these stupid solar and wind subsidies that just distort the marketplace. Uh, and then finally, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, getting the workers we need in this country, we need a new policy uh, with respect to, um, you know, work for welfare. So if you're going to get a welfare benefit, you know, when you've got a 4% unemployment rate, there's no reason that everybody in this country who needs a job and wants a job can get a job. And this idea that people can get food stamps and Medicaid and AFDC and disability payments and all of these things and not have to work for it, we need all hands on deck now. So those are some of the policies that I think 
Trump should make a, a, a top um, priority. What are the biggest hurdles for him? Well, I think that obviously Nancy Pelosi as speaker is a big hurdle. Uh, sometimes he can be his own worst enemy. You know, this is not a, this book isn't just a love affair with Donald Trump. I and mean, we try to be very balanced in terms of the areas where I think he'd be well, uh, you know, served by, you know, not saying so much and, and maybe keeping his mouth shut more. Because look, I always say the thing about Trump is, yeah, I you know I have a lot of relatives who hate Donald Trump. I'm like, don't listen to what Donald Trump says. Look at what he does, and and look at his record, and look at his results. As as the Wall Street Journal put it very, I think, cleverly, uh, not too long ago, uh, they said, you know, Donald Trump is the worst president ever unless you look at his results, <laughs> and then he looks at, like one of the best presidents ever. So, uh, and then he's got to solve this trade problem. You know, he's got to get this thing solved because there's no question that th the tariff threat. Is, uh, is holding back the economy. I estimate we've probably reduced about half a percent of our GDP growth because of these trade wars. I saw a headline today. I The U.S. is a net uh, exporter of oil for the first time in 75 years. And oh, I didn't see that. I mean, I know we're close to that. And if it, if that's the case, that's great. We great Last news. week, we had a, a weekly surplus, uh, more exports and imports of the, of the oil and refined products, I believe. Was that the IER? I that's mean, from yeah, 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 I believe. Fantastic. I mean, <laughs> this is what we've been. That's when's the last time that happened? Uh, for, for, you know, 40, think, 50 yeah, years there, ago. There was a, a week in nineteen ninety one. Okay. Evidently, that was the yeah. last single week, and yeah. then in terms of uh, a whole year, or right. actually no, a whole month. Now, does this the include of oil and natural gas, or just this oil? was just oil, natural okay. gas? That's, yeah, we've had a few other. We're, we're already about exactly. of natural gas. Exactly. So yeah, it was what a great story. I mean, think about all the jobs. Think about how this reduces our trade deficit. Think about how it. You know, reduces the price of uh, you know gasoline at the pump. I mean, in Virginia where I live now, uh, we're paying you know a dollar ninety nine a gallon now. I mean, that's a big savings to American consumers. I estimate as an economist, every one penny reduction in the price of gasoline at the pump puts a billion and a half dollars more into the economy that people can spend on going to restaurants or you know buying Christmas gifts or paying their health care premiums and, and paying for the cost of Obamacare and all of these other things. So you know, this is a big. It's almost like a big tax cut to the American consumer when we produce more energy and the price falls. Here's a wild card for you. Who's going to be the 2020 Democratic presidential nominee? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that is, you know, I learned about politics from, um, you know, from the 2016 election is that, uh, the, 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 you know, the experts can be completely wrong, right? I mean, actually, this is the, one of the, my takeaways from not just with respect to politics, but in life. I always tell audience when they say, what's the you know, lesson of the 2016 election? It is this, um, that sometimes in life and a lot more often than you think, the experts are completely wrong. And every single political prognosticator, every pollster, every, uh, you know, these talking heads on the TV, you know, 95% of them had it all wrong about this one. First, they said Donald Trump could never win the primary. Then they said he could never possibly beat Hillary Clinton in the election. And of course, he pulled those things off. And I think there's a lesson there where like when people say, well, everyone knows global warming is happening. Well, wait a minute. You know, A, that's not true. B, you know, sometimes the scientists are wrong. I was, I grew up with Julian Simon being my mentor when he single-handedly took on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of scientists. And he was right. And they were all wrong about, you know, population bomb, about peak oil, about running out of food, mass starvation, you know, uh, global cooling, all of this stuff that they believed. So, you know, th this is a good lesson that we should be skeptical sometimes of what, quote, the experts tell us. Trumponomics is a set of ideas or policy positions. Does that live and die with Trump 
or how do you see these ideas playing out in the GOP going forward? Trump has changed the Republican Party, I think, fundamentally. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, this is the other big story that's kind of not being told, which is, you know, if you look at what happened in 2016 and then, you know, 2018 was not a good election for Republicans, but it, it also uh, magnified what's going on in this country, which is uh, the Republican Party now under Trump, and I think it will continue after him, it will be the party of the working class America, you know, the middle class. The liberals are winning the very poor areas and all the richest districts in the country also went for Democrats. So, you know, they are the party of the elite. Uh, and, you know, that I think climate change, which is an issue you deal with a lot, is a perfect example. And climate change is the issue of the elite and the rich who can afford to care about, you know, what the you know global temperature is going to be in 2100. I don't think too many working class Americans who are struggling to pay their bills every day and, you know, uh, trying to make sure they can keep their job and keep their family safe and secure and, and pay for their health insurance are up at night wondering what the temperature of the planet is going to be in 2100. And when liberals say, gosh, I mean, we saw this in uh, in France, right? I mean, working class people said, wait a minute, I don't want to pay $6 a gallon for gasoline because you say I have to worry about climate change. I want, I care about my family uh, more than, you know, what these scientists say. So um, I think that's the big fundamental political shift that's happened with Trump. And I wrote something very controversially right after the 2016 election. And we talked about this in the book where I said, it's Trump's party now. And for better or worse, and I think for better, it is Trump's party. And and the, I think the Republicans are more attentive to uh, the concerns about, you know, middle-class America. And how do we, how do we make sure, every meeting I was in with Donald Trump, you know, during the campaign, it's like, how is this policy that you're recommending going to help middle-class blue-collar workers, the steel workers and the coal miners and the farmers and the people really do struggle. I mean, there's a sense out there by a lot of liberals that Trump cares about rich people. He say the rich could keep, keep take care of themselves. I care about those, you know, those people who are struggling to make ends meet, working hard 40 hours a week. And that's one thing I love about him, frankly. The first meeting I had with him, I said, you know, uh, Donald, I, we called him Donald back then during the campaign. I said, I don't know if I love you, but I love your voters. These are patriotic, hardworking Americans that have been forgotten by Washington. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that, <laughs> uh, yeah, that you'd want to discuss? I think that really, you know, covered it. I'm, I'm really optimistic about the U.S. economy in the future. Uh, you know, as we speak, the stock market's been on a roller coaster ride. Uh, Trump is struggling to get a deal with China. And so it's been a little bit of a rocky patch now. But I just think, you know, that if the economy looks fundamentally strong to me and manufacturing and construction, energy is doing well. Um, and so uh, I believe if this economy continues to roll on like it has over the last you know, two years, Trump is going to win a 40 state you know, landslide reelection. He's going to win every state he won and he's going to pick up five or six more because people love prosperity. And, you know, as George Carville put it, you know, um, it's, it's the economy, stupid. And that's, you know, people may not like Trump personally, but they sure like what he's done for our economy and for our finances. Our guest today has been Stephen Moore. His book, Trumponomics, is available now. Steve, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you. I love what you guys do at IER. It's one of my favorite organizations. And, you know, I, can, I love the fact that anytime I need an energy statistic or to understand what's happening in the energy market, to get the real story, I can go to IER. We're always happy to help. So thank you.